Okay, Torah portion called Balak, which is, um, maybe we should call it Balaam, but uh, this Torah portion has, for us non-Hebrew speakers, it's got all these weird words, Balak, Balaam, Baor, all sorts of weird names that kind of uh, run together for us, so you sort of have to pay attention here. So that was, um, do we know who that was? You can't see the full picture, but you see the donkey, you see the guy with the rod about ready to smite the donkey, you see an angel in the background, and there's two other guys over here. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts? Moses? No. Or no. It's Balaam. Yeah, ba- yeah. Balaam, Balaam. Because <laughs> he's the guy that, according to your flannel graphs, uh, spoke to the donkey. Well, the donkey spoke to him. And that's, you know, that, that may seem sort of weird that a donkey could talk. I don't think he should hit him the donkey. No, he shouldn't hit him, and he's going to pay the price for that. But the weird part is he answered the donkey. So, okay. So anyway, that's Balaam. He's going, he's on his way to see Balak, the king, at Baal, the place. So the story goes like this, and there is... I was sort of expecting this to be a much quicker uh, study. You know, just a couple little things. We blast right through this and get to the cake again. Um, and, of course, about 4.30, I finally got it done, so I've only read through it once, which is why you had no, no music slides because my wife didn't have time to get on the computer because I had it all day. Um, so the basic story is King Balak of Moab, uh, and by the way, um, Balak means waster from Balak, means to annihilate, and he's the king of the Moabs. Moab is, he's the illegitimate son of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughter. So there's a cloud over the whole deal right off the bat. And Moab was traditionally an enemy of the people of God. Um... Balak, King Balak, sees the children of God moving up the valley towards him, and he's already understood what they did to the Amorites. So, and Amorites, uh, by the way, means to speak. So their demise at the hands of Israel spoke a lot to King Balak. So he went to the elders of Midian, which was just down the desert a bit, and said to them that, look, we need to do something here because these guys are going to take over and we're all done. And it seems odd if you think it through. Midian, are you familiar with Midian? Do we know any Midianites from the Bible? I thought Abraham was. No, but he passed through. Um, Jethro was a Midianite. Because it's east of Egypt. Well, Jethro became Moses' father-in-law. Moses married one of Jethro's daughters. So Moses' wife was a Midianite. And Jethro was obviously uh, somewhat involved in all this. And he was a good, you know, more or less godly guy. So in, in the, when, when you read Midian throughout Scripture... Uh, it's sort of a ping-pong thing. Sometimes you'll see him as supporting the people, and sometimes you'll see him as enemies of the people. 
So today we're going to see them as enemies of the people. So it says Balak was, this is King Balak, was distressed and filled with dread about these people, which sort of echoes the Pharaoh's concern. Oh, by the way, that's the Torah portion and those are the, which I have sent you, but those are the uh, readings. Um, So in Exodus chapter 1, verse 9, and 10, I think it's in this being he, the, the Pharaoh. And he said unto his people, behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we come on. Let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And it come to pass that when there falleth out any war, they join unto our enemies and fight against us. So get them up and out of the land. So these were almost the same words that King Balak was using. He's looking on these people and realizing they are more and mightier than him. What are we going to do? So he decides to send for this seer named Balaam, Balaam. And the reason they think that he sent for him is because if you had, and we, you know, we skip so much in these Torah portions. Last week, if we had time to hit on it, we would have learned or at least surmised that in one of the, the battles in the, you know, there's always battles going on in the Middle East. But King Balak was defeated by King Seir, Seir or something. And it was at the hands of a curse from Balaam. So now he finds himself in trouble. And he says to himself, self, I should get that guy. Because I know when he curses people, they are cursed. So let's send a bunch of guys over with a bunch of money and stuff. And we'll get him to come here and curse these people. So as you're reading through this... Um, And I'm going to try to, the best part is at the end. So I'm going to try to get there tonight. Um, So Balaam, Balak and Midian go to Balaam and offer riches for him to come and curse the people. And in their words, come up out of the land of Egypt. And as you read uh, the way they're talking to Balaam, or at least the way it's recorded, they never really say it's Israel. And judging by Balaam's response when he finally sees the people, he seems a little surprised because Balaam is living in Mesopotamia where Abraham used to live, whoever said that. Uh, But he was a follower or at least a proponent of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. So he wouldn't necessarily want to curse Israel. So I think, and as you read it, you know, you're reading it after the fact, that they purposely didn't tell him who it was. He said a people, they said a people had come out of Egypt and they were covering the land and he needed to come help. So they offered him all this money to come. Um, and he said, let's see. This is uh, Midbar 22, verse 8. And he said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me, and the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. So think that through. He's saying he's going to go to the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's going to go to God, and he's going to speak to God. And then he's saying, and God spoke to me. But that's his claim to fame. He claims to be a seer and he claims to be uh, on a personal first name relationship with the Lord God of Israel. And that 
as we read it and think about that, seems odd. But if you think it through, it's really not. Because the, the last part of this, it's a three and a half chapters, I think, or four chapters. The last part of this is this outrageous prophecy that most people don't get or read. And when you start thinking about that, the first thing is, why, why would the Lord share all this stuff with, with a guy from Mesopotamia? But that's what he does. He's, he gives visions to Pharaoh. He gives visions to Nebuchadnezzar. He gives visions to all these people. He talks back and forth to all these pagans, or certainly not Israelites, but they don't understand what he's saying. It requires an Israelite like Joseph or uh, Daniel or perhaps in this case, uh, well, we don't know. But it requires somebody else to make known what the prophecy was or what, what he said. You know, and you got the Pharaoh and his, I see the seven, seven good cows and the seven bad cows. And you got Nebuchadnezzar with all his stuff. And so it's not uncommon that the Lord speaks to people that are not his which is one of the main points I would bring up about this Torah portion, is we tend, and I don't mean necessarily we in this room, but as, as believers, we, we tend to follow after or put credence in or trust people that we believe are in communication with our God. All through scripture, you will see that's, Never the criteria. Just because someone speaks with God, and maybe clearly, and maybe gets it right, that is never, never how the Lord would have us determine who to get our theology from. Um, the Lord will always say, in Matthew seven sixteen, for instance, you shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs from thistles it'll never say um, know them by the ones I speak to or if this is the guy I talk to and he's got a vision for me you should follow him or because I talk to him he knows more about me than you do nowhere in scripture is that even implied in fact the more you look into it it's implied perhaps that if he speaks to people on a regular basis, like with Balaam, it might be something you want to avoid because you need to understand basically the Torah. You need to understand his instructions, statutes, judgments, and things of the Lord. And by understanding that and living that way, then you become, you know, you can, you know them by the fruits. We can tell. When we look at Pharaoh, when we look at Nebuchadnezzar, when we look at Balaam, when we look at some of these other people that the Lord spoke directly to, their fruit is bad. Don't be, don't be caught, and televangelists are great at this. They will convince you that, oh, I speak to the Lord all the time. Well, maybe, maybe not. But even if you do, that doesn't mean anything. You know, we, where we live, you have Joel Osteen and his lovely wife, Christina, flying back and forth all the time. And they are just nightmares. Nobody wants to be on the same plane with them. So you know them by their fruit. He's got a, a 
auditorium with what 30,000 people in it and they love him to death and they think he speaks to God well maybe he does but look at the fruit in his life is it is, is it awesome is that where you want to go so we tend to get twisted up on this um, you know the Lord spoke directly with Cain right I mean they had full conversations and Cain was absolutely the opposite of a godly person and you can go through scripture ishmael i mean the name ishmael means uh, the lord will hear so as you go through scripture and look at all these people that communicate with god just be cautious that just because they communicate with god doesn't necessarily mean they're godly and in this case um uh, they're certainly not and yet he had the ability to talk to God apparently at will and God would speak right back to him so it all depends on the heart if God speaks to you how does that change or affect or guide you and if it guides you towards him then that's probably a good thing if not then maybe you need to pay a little more attention so in English is as you just casually read uh, numbers, what well, were midbar, the 20, whatever it was, 22 through 25, those chapters, um, it wouldn't necessarily give you the impression that Balaam was doing anything wrong. In fact, you would get the impression that Balaam is doing everything right, or, you know, maybe not everything, but he was certainly closer to being right than being wrong. And yet he's called Balaam the wicked. And uh, <clears throat> let me just read a couple of things. Second Peter 2.15. Uh, he's speaking about false prophets right here, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Okay, so that's not awesome. Jude 11, uh, woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward, which perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Korah was last week. Earth opened up and swallowed him. Revelation 2.14, but I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. In Numbers 31.16, behold, these caused the children of, a of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to commit trespass against the Lord in the matter of Baor, or Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So as you casually read this section of Numbers, you might get the impression that uh, Balaam was doing good. He was representing the Lord. And he was in some sense, but his heart was never in it. His heart was always in it for the money. Because King Balak sent all these people to come convince him to come and curse this other group he didn't know. And he went and saw the Lord. The Lord said, do not go with them and do not curse these people. So he comes back out and dutifully tells the people, no, I can't go. He didn't say he couldn't curse the people. He just said, no, I can't go. So they packed up their mules and they drove home, which was like 900 miles. Get there. King Balak is livid. So he sends more people of higher authority with more promises of riches back to Balaam. Balaam says the same thing. Well, let me sleep on it. I'll talk to the Lord and get back to you in the morning. He does. Well, I mean, he didn't have to. He already knew the answer to the question. Why didn't he just turn him around right there? But he didn't. 
you know, perhaps Middle Eastern cultures, if anyone comes in your house, you're hospitable to them. So I'm guessing that that's probably it. But he says, I'm going to seek the Lord on this and see what he says. Well, he already knew what the Lord would say. So he comes back out and says, okay, I'll go with you. And it says immediately after that, and, and, uh, well, and he did that because he went to the Lord and asked, and the Lord said, fine, go, you know, whenever you want to go, go. Think about last week, what was the, well, the week before that, what was the title of that? Send for yourself. You want to send spies? I didn't tell you to send spies. You want to send them? Fine, send them. I'm not with you, but send them if you want. You look at King Saul. I mean, there, there are a number of occasions in scripture when he'll give you the instructions. And if you don't want to obey him, fine. You do what you want to do, but there are repercussions for it. So he approaches them a second time, says, hey, should I go? They said, fine, go. So he comes out, <clears throat> tells the guys he'll go. They all saddle up their donkeys and head back to King Balak. And this is where he's on his donkey, and that's the flannel graph and, and all of that stuff. Um, so when he gets uh, he, the donkey... The, the Lord puts an angel in front of the donkey. The donkey swerves because the donkey can see it. Oddly, the seer can't see it. So the donkey swerves. Balaam smacks him with his rod. And then they move on down a little bit. The angel appears for a second time. And this time they're in a narrow spot. So the donkey swerves and crushes Balaam's foot against the wall. And then the third time they're in a very narrow spot. The angel's got the whole place blocked up. So the donkey just sits down and Balaam falls off the donkey. So he strikes him three times. The angel appears three times. And uh, finally, the Lord opens Balaam's eyes so that he can see this angel. And they get into this big discussion about, you know, what's he doing? And he can't do that. And why, why is he going? And the angel is trying to save his life. And it's an, it's an interesting discussion. Hopefully you, you, you read that. Um, but one of the things of interest, I thought, was, I don't know if I can find it, um, it crushes his foot. So I was thinking about, and I don't know where it is, Proverbs 1, starting in verse 10. And this is King Solomon to his son, or generically son. Starting in verse 10, he said, My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. If they say, come with us and let us wait for blood, let us lurk privately for the innocents, for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them up alive as the grave and, and whole as those that go down to the pit. We shall find all precious substance and fill our houses with spoil. Cast in thy lot among us and let us have one purse. My, my son, and then this is uh, Solomon, my son, walk not in the way with them. Refrain your foot from their path, for their feet will run to evil and make haste to shed blood. And that was actually preceded in verse 7 by the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So that's kind of where we are with uh, Baal. Is he, the Lord told him clearly what not to do, don't go. Don't curse. He comes back and asks them again. And just like, you know, kids, they will ask each parent until they get the right answer. 
um, he went back and the Lord said, fine, go. You know, there's a price to pay. Um, so he goes, runs into the angel. And at some point, the donkey, he, the Lord opens the mouth of the donkey, which is the, the flannel graph part that you get. And he basically says, why have you hit me these three times? Because he could see the angel. He knew what was going on. And Baal said, because you've mocked me. So a couple of weird things. I mean, he just answers a donkey like it happens every day. <laughs> that seems odd. But, you know, he's a seer. He's a seer, but he can't see the angel. And then he says to the donkey, because you've mocked me. If I had a sword, I'd kill you right now. Okay, so let's get this in perspective. He, he's a seer who can't see. He's on his way to slay a nation with his words, but he needs a sword to kill a donkey. Now, is there something wrong with this picture? Okay, so he gets in a big discussion with the angel, and the angel says to him, you know, you, you have to say exactly what I say. And I suspect the angel is just an incarnate Yeshua. And he, uh, he says to the angel, apparently thinking that the angel is a little ticked off, well, if you want me to, if it displeases you, I'll return home. He's like, really? Are you kidding me? The Lord has told him no. The angel has stopped him. The donkey has spoken with him. And then he's shocked somebody might be displeased by all this. So at that point, then the angel assigns him a job. No, you are going to go. And you are going to say exactly what I tell you to say. So he's, uh, he's now thinking this through as he's traveling. And like I say, it really is 900 miles between these spots. So if you think about this, King Balak sent to Midian, which was several hundred miles, to get them to get on board. They sent emissaries back to him. Then he sent people to Balaam. Then Balaam sent them back. Then he sent them again. And then they came back. So this could have been six months, a year, I don't know, you know, it's impossible to say, it doesn't tell you how long, but there's some amount of time, we read it as though these things happened on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and that's, this took some time, so he's had an amount of time to consider all this stuff, um, so again, you've got Balaam, who's a seer, who's well known as a seer, who has made a profession out of communicating with the Lord. And I keep thinking, you know, in our happy little valley, we have three televangelists that have second homes here. And I keep thinking, gosh, that's, I don't know. I mean, that doesn't seem weird that you're a pastor and you can afford a second or third or fourth home, you know, multi-million dollar home in a ski resort. So you think about Cain and Nimrod and Ishmael and Esau and Balaam and all of these guys, and it's not hard to see how that sort of relationship with the Lord can breed a haughty mind, proud spirit, evil eyes, because I guess you just get, and I don't know, you know, I've talked to a couple of these televangelist types, and it just seems like they really are convinced that God is doing something wonderful through them, you know, that they're special, that he's picked them 
to do this and and of course i can have a second or third home in a jet and stuff i mean you know why not we've got that guy in atlanta who who convinced his congregation he needed a new jet he had a jet but he needed a new one and not just any jet but he needed this Gulfstream, whatever it was 65 million dollar jet and so somebody offered him like a 30 million dollar jet and he says no the lord doesn't want me to travel in that he wants this 65 million dollar jet well how do you get to there from following god I mean, I can't see anybody in this room all of a sudden, you know, thinking that way. But these guys do sometimes. And when the Lord uses these people, they tend sometimes to think more of themselves than maybe they should. So anyway, the bottom line is if, if the Lord uses us, just remember it's for him, not for us. And, you know, Benny Hinn is another classic one. The Lord might heal somebody through him. So now he's got this giant ministry as a healer. Well, he's not a healer. God is a healer. And it's now and again to heal somebody. Awesome. Amen. And hallelujah. You know, he's done it through me once. I don't expect he'll do it again. And I certainly didn't want to make a living about it. It's kind of a freaky thing when he does stuff like that. But I suppose... Sometimes you get, I don't know, because you see it so often in real life and in scripture. So anyway, Balaam is the Lord speaking to him. There's no question that he talks to the Lord and the Lord speaks back. There's no question that the Lord does miracles in front. I mean, the donkey spoke, the angel appeared, stuff had happened in the past. The Lord does do stuff. But the king offered him a great deal of money and honor if he would come do, you know, use his powers for bad and not good, right? But in his defense, he didn't know who it was he was going to be cursing. But still, you can't be a cursor for hire. You can't use God like that. If God wants to use you, he'll use you. And you should do what he asks you to do. And he told him, don't do this. Do not curse those people. So you can only assume on the time it took from the first group to leave get to the king, took a second group, went back. I mean, it had to take months. I don't travel by donkey, but I'm guessing it's not quick. So it would take, so you think he's running this through his mind, right? Well, maybe I should have gone. You know, he's, I, could, I could do both. And then the second group comes and he now says, yeah, okay, I'll go. And all the way back, he's probably thinking, Okay, I've got to say the things that the Lord says, but I have to come up with a way to collect the money too. Because that's the error of Balaam all through scripture is that he's using God's gifts for money. And if I was a televangelist, I would be just a little freaked out reading about Balaam so often. Or, you know, and I get weird about that. Whenever I do a camp or something, I won't ever take it. I won't take any money from you guys. Not that you have any money, but it, because the Lord provides for me, it would be different if I was destitute and he, you know, allowed me to make a living that way. He doesn't, he provides for me in other ways. So I don't, I don't think that I would be a good one to be paid for this because it wouldn't, I mean, it just doesn't jive with me. I love doing it. 
but I would I, I wouldn't love doing it if I was getting paid to do it because I'd be too freaked out about it just rubs me the wrong way anyway Matthew 6 24 said no man can serve two masters for either he will hate one and love the other or else he will hold to one and despise the other you cannot serve God and mammon that's his debate over the course of however many months it was is how do I serve the Lord how do I do what he asked me to do and collect the dough and the honor well he obviously was working it out and by the way this whole section of scripture was originally called the book of Balaam it was sort of added to the book of uh, Midbar later okay so let's see so he's got the whole deal with the angel. The angel says, no, you are going and you're going to say the things that I say. So he takes off on his faithful donkey uh, again and is heading towards King Balak. Oh, and by the way, the angel, the third time we see the angel, he's described as Satan because he's opposing the things that Balaam wants to do. And he says to him, um, he didn't say, if I had a sword. He said something like, this donkey, I would have slain you and let the donkey live if the donkey didn't, didn't stop, didn't protect you. So basically he was that close to dying. It was the donkey that saved his life because this angel was ready to take him out. But anyway, the angel is called Satan, not because the angel is bad, but because he was opposing the things that Balaam uh, was trying to do. Okay. Let's see. Okay, so Balaam arrives. And King Balaam, and again, I'll just paraphrase this. King Balaam says, where have you been? What took so long? And he says, I'm here. Deal with it. So then they, he says, this is what I want you to do. Prepare seven offerings of bulls and goats and seven blah, blah, blahs. And then we're going to go, we're going to go curse some people. So King Balak takes him to the mountain. And in uh, Midbar 23, starting in verse 7, it says, and he took up this this is Balaam is at the mountain now the first mountain and he's looking down on the people it's the first time he's seen the people and he seems a little surprised to find out that these are the people of Israel so that's adding to his confusion he's trying to work out how he's going to get the money how he's going to get the honor and then he finds out it's the people of Israel and he knows he can't curse them so he said in verse 7 and he took up this parable and he said, Balak, the king of Moab, hath brought me here from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come curse me, Jacob, and defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom God hath not defied? From the top of the rocks I see him from the hill well alone, and they shall not be reckoned among the nations. How can I count? Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous and let me let my last be like his. So um, this word alone, uh, the country shall or Israel shall dwell alone is Badad. It means separate and then and shall not be 
kashab or woven in. So what he's saying is he, he's talking to Balak, looks down and goes, well, well, these people desire to be separate from the nations. They're not going to be part of you and they're not going to be woven in among the nations. They're not going to become part of the fabric of all of you Edomites. They're going to be different and sanctified and set apart. Why do you feel the need to do battle with them? They're not here to kill you. They're here to get the land that the Lord promised them. And Moab is actually mostly slightly outside of that. So had King Balak let them alone, as Balaam is saying, okay. He would have maybe lost a little territory, but they were not there to destroy him. They were on their way to the promised land. And that's the first prophecy that, that Balaam seems to get here. And he's, you know, he says, who would curse the people of God? I can't curse them. And that's one of the other big messages uh, in this is you can't curse people God has blessed no matter what you want to try. So the other thing he said is uh, he talked about, let's see, he talked about the rocks and the hills. From the top of the rocks I see them, from the hills I behold. And then he says, no, these people dwell alone. They shall not be reckoned among the nations. And if you read that uh, the way it was written, it suggests that he's saying to Balak, these people have been here since the rocks and the hills have been here. And they will be here after the rocks and the hills are here. There's nothing you're going to do to these people. And Isaiah 51, 7 says the same thing. Hearken to me that you follow after righteousness, that you seek the Lord. Look unto the rock from whence you are hewn and to the hole of the pit which you are digged. So Israel is, is called a rock and, and the mountain several times in scripture. So Balak seems stunned at this. Uh, he was expecting a curse, and instead he gets a blessing. So it, uh, Balaam reminds him that he can only say what the Lord is telling him to say. So nonetheless, he took them to another high place, down from that mountain up to another high place called the field of the, the field of Sophim, or means watchers, on the Mount of Pisgah, to try to cur curse them again. Do we know Pisgah? Do we know the field of watchers? No. No. <clears throat> 5,712 foot tall Mount Pisgah is the place Moses went to die. So if you remember, the Lord brought Moses up to the mountain. He couldn't go into the promised land, but he brought him up to the mountain so he could see it. There's, that's it. That's from Mount Pisgah. And that whole, I mean, that whole area that you see off the mountain is the promised land. That's the land that the Lord promised to uh, the people. So Balak, his kingdom is out here, like where I'm sitting. That's not in the promised land. The Israelites weren't going to take his land unless he starts to get, you know, real snotty like some of the other kings had gotten. He would have been fine. And that's what Balaam told him. Leave them alone. These people have been here since the beginning and they will be here at the end. All of that is theirs, which is interesting. But that's the view that Moses had.
from his end. And he could see all of that and visualize it covered uh, with the Lord's people. Okay. So the Lord gives Balaam a word up here in uh, Midbar 18. And it says, he took up his parable and said, rise up Balak and hear, hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor, who's Balaam, that's Balak, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie. Neither said, shall, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken it, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandments to bless, and he hath blessed. I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld inequity. Now get this. Talking about the Lord, he has not beheld inequity in Jacob, neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He hath, as it were, the strength of a... And, you know, these words in Hebrew don't often get translated. <laughs> awesome. And who knows? You know, this could be exactly right. But of a unicorn. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time, it shall be said of Jacob and in Israel, what has God wrought? Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift himself as a young lion, and he shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink of the blood of the slain. I mean, that is a heck of a prophecy. <laughs> but let's just back up here a second. He says he has not beheld any inequity in Jacob, neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. Now that just seems crazy because for 40 years, there's been nothing but inequity and perverseness in these people. The Lord has threatened to wipe them off the face of the map. How many times and how often did Moses have to fall on his face and pray for forgiveness to save these people? So you, you have to stop and wonder what that's about. So go back to what, what this whole, in the, and you kind of have to know this ahead, I guess. But he keeps taking him to the mountains to look at the people. He does this three times. This is the second one. Well, what's he looking for? You would think that if the guy could curse the people, he could curse them from anywhere. He doesn't actually need to see them. But he takes them up to the mountain and he blesses them, takes them down, takes them up to another mountain. He blesses them again and he will take them up yet a third time to another mountain to look at the people from different places. The, the idea is that he can only curse things that he sees that they're doing wrong. If the people were, say, for instance, making a golden calf in his presence, he could curse that and he could call the people on that. But when he's looking down from where he was, he saw no inequity in the people. There was nothing that he could curse. And that's why Balak kept taking him to different places, hoping that he would see something that would allow him to curse the people instead of bless the people. And we know that he never does. So uh, he says this, that, that he hath not beheld any inequity in Jacob. But the bigger picture, and we get this all through scripture, is if God has blessed it, we can't curse it. So think of uh, the, the very beginning. You've got the Nakash in the garden. He didn't 
curse Adam and Eve. He conned them, right? He, he, it was good words and, and good food. It's the, it's the same thing that they always use. If he was, if he was Satan or the absolute adversary, the, the adversary, you would think that he would have some authority with which to curse the people. But he doesn't. You think of Jacob, and he totally scammed his father, and yet he skates on it. He can't be cursed for that because previously he'd already been blessed. You think of uh, Noah and the kids, right? So you've got the whole story of, uh, of Ham coming in and doing stuff to his father and then the other two back into the tent remember backwards and put the cloth over and cover them and all that stuff so when noah gets up and discovers what has happened he doesn't curse ham which always struck me weird he curses ham's son canaan well he couldn't curse ham because ham had previously been blessed and every time you go through scripture and see something where you would think this guy should be cursed or punished or in some way disciplined for his actions, and he's not, often if you go back further, you will find that this one's been blessed, and you can't curse him. So this is the same idea here. These people down below that we're looking at, this nation of Israel, all those people of God have been blessed by God. We can't curse them. Baal or Balak or Balaam or whoever you're going to get has no authority to curse somebody that the Lord has blessed. The only person that has the authority to do that is the Lord himself. Well, Balaam knows this because that's why he's acting and saying the things that he is. So he also knows there's a way to fix this problem. There is a way that I can get the money and get the honor and bless the children. And that's why in those four sections I read, Balaam is a bad guy. He's called Balaam the wicked. But everything we read about him seems to be pretty good. You don't actually read what he did. You read about what he did. And what he knew was that you cannot bless, I mean, you cannot curse the people of God. But you can cause them to sin because they're, we already know the caliber of the people. They are not awesome in that regard. Okay, so Balak is now totally unhappy that the children have been blessed twice, but he's, gives him one more shot. He brings him to one more mountain and the mountain he brings him to is Mount Peor or Baal Peor, which you read about in scripture. And it's the high place. It's where all the tabernacles and what were for the uh, children of Moab. It's not the place that a God-fearing man wants to be. So he goes up there and, and King Balak says, don't curse them, don't bless them, don't say anything. Just look and see if there's an opening for us. 
So, of course, Balaam goes up there, and he can only say what the Lord told him to say. So he's about, he turns away from the people. He turns away from King Balak, and he's facing in the complete opposite direction. And it says his eyes are opened and the spirit of the Lord fell on him. And he starts this prophecy that's, that's pretty awesome. But before we go there, last week, remember, we talked about, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, the earthen vessels inside the house when a person dies, they are considered polluted or uh, have to be cleansed unless it's sealed. And then it's good to go. And and we're described as earthen vessels all the time. And I would suggest um, that this is sort of the same thing. These children down in in the valley floor are God's people. And they have been sealed by God. They're losers and jerks, but they've been sealed by God. And sin in the form of King Balak or even Balaam or anybody else trying to do away with these people because they're sealed. Now that's to say nothing, you know, if if this earthen vessel was full of something just disgusting and poisonous and smelly and you sealed it, it would still be good to go, but it would be full of stuff you wouldn't necessarily want. But the idea is they're sealed, so they're protected. God is the only one that can deal with them because he sealed them, if that makes any sense. Um, Okay, let's jump down to this one. So we, we talked about this a little bit before. The people of Israel did not have eyes on King Balak or Moab because that was outside of their promised land. Now, whether or not King Balak knew that, I don't know. It would have been simple enough to ask, but he didn't. So he's, uh, he is, he's trying to curse and will do battle like so many of the other kings in the past with these people for no reason. They are hated without a cause, really. If, if, if the, uh, the, the people outside of the children of Israel had bothered to find out what the deal was, they could have saved themselves all kinds of heartache. But they didn't. They hated the people of Israel. And they hated them without a cause. It doesn't even make sense to try to curse somebody, to try to do battle with somebody that's not going to take your stuff. They're just passing through, right? Why, why would you do that? And I'm thinking about, well, not just today, but in, in, in the history of history, everybody hates the Jews. They don't even know why they hate them. It doesn't make any sense the Jews have no interest in them, have no interest in conquering their country or really even proselytizing to them. They believe that they're God's people and they're in their place and they're just trying to do their thing. They're no threat to anybody. And to this day, they're no threat to anybody. I mean, did you feel safe and secure in Israel? Sure. If you were not safe and secure, who would have... Yeah. All right. When, you, when you're outside of the people of God, then all of a sudden it's a totally different dynamic. But it's never the people of God's fault. They are hated without a cause. I mean, it's pathological. And I'm 
and maybe this isn't the best thing, but I'm thinking about Trump derangement syndrome. These people hate him to the extent that the, the positions they were holding before he was elected, if he held, holds them, they abandon him and call him every name in the book. They don't want to be associated with him. I mean, it's, it's utterly pathological. They're, they're, he, it, does, it doesn't make sense. And it's the same thing with Israel. It's like Israel derangement syndrome. Everybody hates Israel for no reason. Israel wants to do them no harm. What's the deal? So you go back to, um, you know, this word badah, it means separate. They're, they are not part of the fabric of the world order. They are God's people. They don't want anything to do with your stuff. All they want to do is know God and focus on him. And they're terrible at it. But they're no threat to anybody else. So I think we should make up some t-shirts with Israel derangement syndrome on it. Uh, anyway, so, uh, okay, so here we go. He's on Mount, Mount Beor, Baal Beor, and he once again reserve, receives a word from the Lord. And we'll pick it up in Midbar 25, verse 2. And it says, Balaam lifted up his eyes and he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes or tribe by tribe. And the spirit of God came upon him and he took up his parable and he said, Balaam, the son of Beor has said, the man whose eyes that are open has said. So remember, this is the seer that couldn't see. But now the spirit of God has opened his eyes. He has said, which has heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. If you guys, did you get to go to a service at all while you were in Israel? Any kind of a Jewish synagogue? Okay. If you ever go to, as far as I know, any Jewish temple, synagogue meeting or anything, they begin and end the service with these words, how lovely are they tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. And then they start the service, they do the service, and they end it the same way. Well, those are words of Balaam. And it seems odd to use that in every service of the tabernacle that, as far as I know, has been done for thousands of years. Because these words... He had fallen into a trance and the spirit of God fell on him. And these were his words. How lovely are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel. The valleys are, they are spread forth as gardens by the river's side. And keep in mind, they're in the desert. I mean, it's a nice, nice enough place, but they're in the desert. The valleys, they are they spread forth as the gardens by the river's side. The trees of line aloes, it's an aloe tree, which the Lord hath planted in his cedars besides the water. He shall pour out the water of his, and this is a bad translation, pour out the waters of his buckets and the seed shall be in many waters and his king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brought him forth out of Egypt and he hath as it were the strength of a unicorn. He shall eat up the nations of his enemies and he shall break their bones and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched and lay down as a lion, as a great lion. Who shall stir him up? Blessed is he that blessed thee and cursed is he that cursed thee. Okay, so at, at this point, um, um, Balak interrupts him. But <clears throat> if you remember Genesis 12, 
3. I will bless them that bless thee and curse them that curse thee. And in thee all the families or the tribes of the earth shall be blessed. That's basically what we were reading here. Um, and he's talking about um, his seed shall be in many waters. Many waters is often a term for the nations. So he's saying God's people, the, those people will be in, in all the nations. And they will have the strength of the unicorn and, you know, blah, 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 all this stuff. And then he repeats this thing from Genesis uh, 12:3, that those who bless him will bless, will be blessed. And those who curse him will be cursed. And in thee, all the families or tribes of the earth shall be blessed. <clears throat> okay. So Balak, King Balak then says, sort of interrupts him mid, mid uh, prophecy. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam and he smote his hands together. And Balak said unto Balaam, like behold, you hath altogether blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee thou out to thy place. I thought to promote thee unto great honor, but lo, the Lord has kept back honor from you. Really? You think so? Getting honor from King Balak is not a good thing. But you think about that. We, I mean, probably even us, we tend to put uh, too much emphasis on getting honor from men. Why? I mean, it makes no sense. We should, we should be more interested, we should only be interested in getting honor from God, right? Honoring him and having him honor and protect us. But we don't. We, we live our lives and we have to work and there's things we have to do. And, and we tend to want to receive honor from men. So Jesus addressed that in John 44, starting in verse 41. And he says, I receive not honor from men, but I know you that you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my father's name and you receive me not. If another shall come in his name, him you will receive. How can you believe which receiveth the honor of one and another and not seek the honor that comes from God only? Legitimate question. Shouldn't we be more focused on getting, you know, in touch with God than in touch with men? But anyway, Balaam continues his prophecy starting in verse 15. And he took up his parable and he said, Balaam, the son of Beor, hath said, the man whose eyes are open hath said, and he hath said, which heard the word of the Most High, which saw the vision of the Almighty falling in a trance, but having his eyes open. I see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab, and destroy all the children of Seth. And Edom shall be a possession, and Seir shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion, and destroy him that remaineth of the city. And when he looked on Amalek, he took up the parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his latter end shall be that he perish forever. And he looked on the Kenites and he took up his parable and he said, strong is thy dwelling place and thou puttest thy nest in a rock. Nevertheless, the Kenites shall be wasted until Assyria shall carry them away captive. And he took up his parable and said, alas, who shall live when God does this? And the ship shall come from the coast of Chittim and shall affect Assyria, and shall affect Eber, and he shall also perish forever. So it's an interesting prophecy in a lot of ways. 
Because he says, I see him, but not now. Well, who does he see? He's looking, he's apparently seeing the end. He's seeing the Messiah. He's seeing of the people of God. And who are the children of Seth? Do we know that? Do we know who Seth is? Noah came from Seth. Well, after Noah, there were only three sons. So the children of Seth are everybody. It's the whole world. So he's talking about uh, the end times. And he sees, he sees this guy, but he recognizes not in my lifetime. And I'll be near him, but not in my lifetime. And he goes into what he sees. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and he shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Seth. So he's going to destroy the children of the nations. Well, we would kind of expect that. Um, I want to read something to you. Oh, I want to, th first, I want to read you this. This is from a Maimonides, a commentary on the scripture, like, I don't know, 1,500, 1,700 years ago, on this verse. He says, the Messiah will have to flash across the heavens, visible to the whole world, to gather all of Israel from their dispersion. So Matthew 24, 27 says, For as the lightning come from the east and shineth even to the west, so it shall be in the coming of the Son of Man. And Matthew 24, 30, And it shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds in heaven with great glory. Or great glory. Revelation 1, 7. And he shall cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they shall be which pierced him, and hundreds or kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. So this star of Jacob that's described in the book of Midbar by this more or less pagan seer is Jesus. Jesus. It's the end. It's the, the, I mean, read it in Thessalonians and all, you know, this, he's seeing the end and it's amazing. I wish we could spend hours on this, but Chittim is typically considered Rome or Europe. It's, you know, the ships that would come over the armies and the everything that would come over that they're being affected. It says Syria or Ashur. Um, and again, if this is, if, if I'm getting this right and if this is true, and I have no doubt that this is true, this is true. The question is, am I getting this right? If this is Syria, it might indicate that before the end, Syria, and of course we don't know who that is necessarily, but it's got to include the current Syrians and perhaps the Turks and maybe the Iraqis and stuff. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll gather some power and they will actually... Uh, have some authority and then this event will happen the shooting star that goes across that everybody in the world will see that is jesus returning all of this stuff will happen the children of seth will be the children of the nations who are not following uh, the god of israel will be dispatched um rome chittim will be dispatched and it will affect eber eber Heber, that's Hebrews. That's the Hebrews. So this will, it says affect the Hebrews. So, and we read in different places where th their scales over the eyes of the Jews. And that 
the end, these scales will fall off and many Jews will be saved. So I'm thinking, these other guys are getting destroyed and the Hebrews are being talks about uh, Edom and how if you go back to the prophecy of Jacob and Esau, because Esau is Edom and Jacob is Israel, you go back to that prophecy and it says uh, the, the older will serve the younger. So Edom is going to serve Israel. And the way that Jews look at it to this day is they are, uh, they are in the uh, dispersion of, we'll call it dispersion of Rome, because Rome destroyed the temple in 70 AD. But they consider it the dispersion of Edom. Edom. And the way they look at this prophecy in Genesis 25 is uh, Jacob and Esau, or Israel and Edom, when one is up, the other is down. They can't both be up, they can't both be down. So as one goes up, the other goes down. So currently, they believe, they're in the dispersion of Edom. So Edom is up. But we know Israel will be up and Edom will be down. And that's what this says, is that, this, that, that Edom is about, uh, or at least when he sees this happening, Edom is about to lose their authority and they will be basically destroyed. They will be a, what did he say? They will be a, uh, uh, well, anyway, they will have dominion. Yeah. <clears throat> so then it goes on and it talks about the Kenites and we read it as Kenites. Do we know a Kenite? Think of a Kenite. Remember a Kenite? Caleb was a Kenite. So always there, uh, like Caleb, like Ruth, like Ruth was a Moabitess. She was one of these, one of Balak's girls. Uh, Caleb was a Kenite, which in English it says Kenite. You don't think anything about it. In Hebrew, it's Canite. It's the same word as Cain. Well, there's no Cain because he died in the flood with everybody else. So it isn't necessarily, I mean, it isn't a direct relation to Cain. But now there are people called Cain again. Spelled the same way. So the question is, well, are these, you know, they have fallen into that same thing. They're city builders. They want to avoid the Lord. They want to hide from God. They want to, you know, be Nimrod and be Cain and, and all those things. So when you read it in English, you don't necessarily get that. But this is Cain again. Cain is back on the deal. Um, one of the interesting things is in verse 19, out of Jacob shall come he that have dominion and shall destroy him that remains in the city. Well, we've talked about this before. Cities are bad. Cain built the first city because he was trying to hide from God. Nimrod built the next city because he was trying to get to God. Pharaohs built cities uh, and they treat the Jews, the slaves, like bricks. That's why cities are always made of bricks and altars are made of rock or stone because bricks, you can exchange one for another. It doesn't matter. You know, if, if, if Dan dies, they'll just plug me in, you know, it doesn't matter. They're all the same. They're, they're worthless. They're meaningless, but stones are all different. Everyone looks different. Everyone functions different and you have to stack them together in just such a way so that you can make an altar out of it. You can't cut them or then it would be back to being a brick again. So he says, <clears throat> out of Jacob, Israel, 
shall come he that have dominion. So obviously that's the Lord. And he shall destroy him that remains in the city. And all, well, remember Judas Iscariot? You know, we read it, Judas, son of Mr. Iscariot, because that's his last name. Well, that's not his name. His name is Judas, which has come to be an interesting name. Ishkarot is Hebrew for out of the city. So he's husband of the city. So Judas was representing people, city dwellers. And who was Judas? A thief. He didn't care about the people. He cared about himself. Who was Cain? Didn't care about the people. Cared about himself. Who was Nimrod? Didn't care about the people. Cared about himself. Who was the Pharaoh? Didn't care about people. Cared about himself. Those are the people who live in the cities. And you look today, it's no different. The people who live in the city have a vastly different outlook than the people who live in the country. What did the Lord say to Adam and Eve? Scatter and multiply. He didn't say, get a bunch of kids and build a city. He said, scatter, cover the land, which is exactly what King Balak said. They covered, these people cover the land. That's what the Lord wants. He wants us to scatter and cover the land. He does not want us to live together in these big cities. And, you know, today it's no different. Where do you see huge crime and, I mean, just unbelievably sinful acts are in the city? They're typically not amongst the people in the country. I mean, certainly there are things that happen in the country, and I'm sure there are good people in the city. But for the most part, the cities are bad. And this, the, the word city in Greek is polis, where you get, you know, Annapolis and Indianapolis. But it's the word that you get politics and politicians and police and all these things. And who are politicians? Those are the people that make laws in defiance of God's laws. They make the laws they want to make. They don't reinforce the laws of the Lord. They used to several hundred years ago, but anymore they're absolutely, you know, it was, uh, what's her name? Barbara Bachno, the other one. Feinstein, yeah, who said Christians shouldn't even be allowed to be in government because they can't separate their dogma from the reality of governing. Like, <laughs> you got that backwards, you know, and you see Feinstein or uh, Pelosi, and she's out, you know, making the sign of the cross. She hasn't been to church in probably 200 years. I don't know how old she is, but she looks about 200. And she knows nothing of the things of the Lord. Yeah, she's, she's good at doing this. She's good at looking retarded. So, uh, you know, th that's polis. That city, the Lord will destroy that because there is nothing good in that. Now, the other thing, I don't know what time it is. The other thing to uh, uh, get out of this is, And maybe we're not going to get this out of this right now. But the, the thing is, at the end, there will be this flash of lightning across the sky, and the people will be gathered into the land. And I have said for, I don't know, how many years, that I believe that at the end, there are all these things going to happen in some way or another. We're going to find ourselves in the promised land. And if 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 this is true and this is the best way i can figure this out so far is it's just going to happen you might just wake up one day and you're there you know as, as the lord returns and all the things happen and we've talked about 
you know, Hosea and Malachi and all of that stuff that's going to happen and the scales will fall off the eyes of the Jews and the fathers will, uh, hearts of the fathers turn to the hearts of the children, hearts of children turn to the hearts of the fathers, you know, all those things are going to happen at the end. And maybe part and parcel of that is somehow we get transported back. I mean, it would be awesome. So anyway, the thing that um, Balaam saw was, it said he, I saw Israel dwelling tribe by tribe. He saw this united Israel. He saw all the people of the Lord, and he saw them without inequity and without uh, issue. And obviously, you look at it today, and that's not the case. But this was a prophecy. This is a prophecy at the end. And at the end, that's exactly what it's going to be. The people of God will be dwelling tribe by tribe in the, in the land of Israel, and he will be our God, and we will be his kids. Um, Daniel 7.14 says, And there was given, uh, this is another prophecy of the end, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the people and nations and languages shall serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Um, so this section of uh, the Torah portion ends in the first nine verses of chapter 25 and it talks about one of the princes of uh, Zimri or Zimri I think one of the princes of the tribes how did Balaam get to the people of Israel he convinced King Balak that this is and the the Midian this and the Moabites that all I had to do was send their most beautiful women in to the camp and seduce the men and then, because of the great sin, God would curse them himself, and they didn't need to do it. And that is the tragedy of Balaam. That's why he uh, is called Balaam the Wicked, because he told them that, and he knew that to be true. So he told them that, the king, uh, King Balak, and the Midianites gathered, the, and it, tradition is that even the daughters of the kings did this they went into the camp of israelites seduced the men once they got you know you know how that goes they brought him up to baal peor the mountain that he was just at which is where all their high places and and gods were and they had feasts unto their lords and they fed them and they sexed them and they did you know all the things that they do and the anger of the lord was kindled against them and that was something balaam could not do or Balak could not do. The only person who could do that was the Lord. And the only reason he could do that is because we're all sinners. And these guys fell for it. We fall for it every single time. You bring some good food, you bring some good women, and it's all over. So that's pretty much how it happened. Um, so you see this going on. Moses calls the elders of Israel into the temple, into the temple in the wilderness, and they're weeping over the state of events. They know exactly what's going to happen, and it always happens. Every time they do this, many, many, many thousands of people die at the hands of the Lord, and they, they could see it coming, and they were weeping and praying, and at this very moment, while they're in the tabernacle weeping and praying, Zimri, one of the priests of Simeon, brings a Midianite woman to the temple door and starts having sex with her right at the temple door. And Pincus, or however you say it in English, uh, one of the sons of Aaron, 
the priest, grabs a javelin and spears them both, kills them both at the door of the temple. So apparently they were uh, together. So he put one spear through them both and stayed the plague. But at that point, 24,000 people had died again. So that's how this ends. And then the next Torah portion is called Pincus. It's about this guy and what, because uh, you just can't go around willy-nilly killing people, you know. So the next Torah portion will be on Pincus, and it's interesting as well, I think. So anyway, that's where we are. Hopefully you'll see you here next week.